Most people who look into the war on drugs come away puzzled. Nobody wishes to relive the horrors of alcohol prohibition, yet we endure these same horrors every day in our world of drug prohibition. Nobody wants the return of Al Capone, yet all over the world, drug prohibition produces these Al Capone-like figures. Nobody believes in throwing alcoholics into prison, yet we incarcerate drug addicts by the millions. The war on drugs is full of contradictions running so deep that either we're just plain stupid or something mysterious is going on. So I dived into the origins of the drug war to find out. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. Just to let you know, I've removed the video component of this episode, which would normally be on YouTube, because I wanted to experiment more with the audio side of things. So please let me know what you think. And as always, if you're getting value from these, spread the word for me. This episode continues our series on the war on drugs. For over 100 years, our governments, aided by mainstream media and Hollywood, told us a narrative that all drugs are bad and therefore banning drugs is the only way to help us help ourselves. You can do it by bringing about compulsory education on the subject of narcotics in general, but great marijuana in particular. Many of you may be thinking, well, drugs don't concern me, but it does concern you. It concerns us all because of the way it tears at our lives and because it's aimed at destroying the brightness and life of the sons and daughters of the United States. Of course, the drugs they really mean are non-alcoholic, non-caffeinated, non-pharmaceutical drugs, but why focus on the contradictions? Because contradictions reveal that something is amiss, that either we're too stupid to have principled policy, or there's an ulterior motive to our drug laws. And as it turns out, our drug laws were never about drugs. Let's go back. Prior to 1914, drugs were widely available. It's this past century of drug prohibition that's the historical outlier. Here's the journalist, Johan Hari. Most societies until very recently had a mature appreciation of this, right? Really? We are the outlier. Most societies have had licensed intoxicants. You could pop out for a few errands, go to your local pharmacy, pick up some opium, heroin or cocaine, and you'd be set for a good old Victorian bender. Coca-Cola was initially made from the cocoa plant. Both Queen Victoria and Pope Leo XIII publicly recommended a wine containing cocaine called Vin Mariani, which probably changes the way you think about the monarchy, or cocaine, or both. And despite the wide availability of drugs at the end of the 19th century, there wasn't a strong push for prohibition. No, drug use was a question of personal choice. And we want to get loaded. Yeah! And we want to have a good time. Many doctors used morphine to treat alcohol addiction, and in reality, only a small minority of the population used these drugs. In fact, before 1914, no more than 0.3% of the US population was ever addicted to opium, and those addicted were mostly middle to upper class and maintained functional lives. 
At the time, however, a few global forces were at play. In 1898, following the Spanish-American War, the US acquired the Philippines, which had a government-run opium monopoly and problems with opium addiction among Filipinos. There were trade tensions among the British, China and the US, including concerns that colonial powers were dominating the drug trade. And American missionaries in China complaining about the effects of opium on the Chinese people. This set the stage for the 1909 International Opium Conference in Shanghai, another one in The Hague in 1911, which gave us the 1912 Hague Convention. The aim was to solve the opium problems of the Far East, especially in China. With no medical expert present, these meetings never discussed drug addiction or treatment, setting a dangerous precedent for future international meetups. The first giveaway our drug laws aren't designed to treat problematic drug use. But this was also an extremely racist period of American history. Yale historian David Musto described it as the peak of lynchings, legal segregation and voting laws designed to remove political and social power from African Americans. The press widely claimed that cocaine turned blacks into superhuman hulks who could take bullets without flinching. For instance, one New York Times article had the headline, Negro Cocaine Fiends, New Southern Menace. In addition, widespread anti-Asian racism viewed the smoking of opium as a Chinese scourge and a way to lure vulnerable white women into Chinese opium dens. And so, in 1914, the US passed the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, ostensibly to meet its treaty obligations, even though the Supreme Court would later say that this wasn't required. It's clear, however, the underlying reason was racism. When southern states were reluctant to pass the bill because they fear losing their state's rights to the federal government, the discussion strategically turned to black Americans using cocaine to win their support. The congressional debates said little about narcotics addiction. Now, on its face, the legislation wasn't about prohibition. It merely regulated the manufacture and sale of marijuana, cocaine, heroin and morphine. It allowed manufacturers, importers and pharmacists prescribing narcotics to be licensed to do so. It also maintained the right of physicians to prescribe narcotics in the course of professional practice. In reality, though, the legislation opened the gates to drug prohibition, as, according to journalist Cookie Roberts, And that set up that schedule of chemical substances. The Drug Enforcement Agency still uses a schedule of drugs, going from one, drugs like heroin, down to five, drugs like low modal. And the effects are immediately felt. The authorities aggressively enforce the law against doctors, despite their right to prescribe narcotics. Law enforcement decides that addiction isn't a disease, and addicts, not patients. The medical community is outraged. Just six weeks after the law is passed, an editorial in the New York Medical Journal reads, As was expected, the immediate effects of the Harrison anti-narcotic law were seen in the flocking of drug habitués to hospitals and sanatoriums. Sporadic crimes of violence were reported too, due usually to desperate efforts by addicts to obtain drugs, but occasionally to a delirious state induced by sudden withdrawal. The really serious results of this legislation, however, will only appear gradually and will not always be recognised as such. There will be the failures of promising careers, the disrupting of happy families, the commission of crimes which will never be traced to their real cause, and the influx into hospitals to the mentally disordered of many who would otherwise live socially competent lives. Here, only weeks after the drug war is launched, medical experts are making the same anti-drug war arguments we hear today. But the message falls on deaf ears, 
Between 1915 and 1938, more than 5,000 physicians are convicted and fined or jailed. By 1915, there was cross-border drug trade from Mexico into the US and greater experimentation with different, less-known drugs like marijuana. The Harrison Narcotics Tax Act and its broader context are the first clues the drug war was designed to politically oppress minorities, with little to do with treating problematic drug use. But the drug war also licensed illegitimate government power and corruption. You see, the 1914 Act transferred power from Congress to federal bureaus, which became incentivized to demonstrate their work was worthy of funding, even if this was against the evidence. These problems could not be clearer for all to see than in the most influential drug warrior the world has ever seen. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. Harry Anslinger was the head of the US Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962. The bureau he inherited was the old Department of Prohibition, on the brink of collapse, meaning Anslinger had to convince the public to ban other drugs like marijuana, still legal at the time, in order to keep his agents employed and grow his department. Around the same time, Anslinger had been noticing marijuana scare stories in the papers. A 1927 New York Times article ran the headline, Mexican Family Going Insane, about, well, a Mexican family going insane, due to marijuana of course. Ironically, Anslinger thought the idea of cannabis causing violent crime was an absurd fallacy, but he seizes on these fears nonetheless. He starts asking police officers to find cases where marijuana has killed people and feeds these stories to journalists. He makes a famous radio address. Parents, beware. Your children are being introduced to a new danger in the form of a drugged cigarette, marijuana. Young people are slaves to this narcotic, continuing addiction until they deteriorate mentally, become insane, and turn to violent crime and murder. Thanks for bearing through my 1930s accent. For modern day people, this seems absurd. Stoners have a reputation for being lazy. I don't think I've seen anyone stoned in a heated argument, let alone commit a murder. But such is the propaganda fueling the drug war, just like the 1936 church-funded movie Reefer Madness. And more vicious, more deadly, even than these soul-destroying drugs, is the menace of marijuana. True or not, definitely not, Anslinger's propaganda is effective. In 1930, only 16 US states had banned cannabis. By 1937, all states had. Giving Anslinger the perfect pretext for more power, the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, federal legislation unifying the state's marijuana laws. But like the 1914 Act, the marijuana legislation has a hidden agenda. In the early 1930s, the southwestern states had been suffering from a Mexican race panic as Mexican immigrants competed for scarce jobs. One solution was the Mexican repatriation, which supported thousands of Mexicans, many American-born, back to Mexico. But this wasn't all. Many Mexicans also smoked cannabis, or marijuana, the Mexican spelling authorities adopted to drive home this point. This fear, in turn, led southwestern police and prosecuting attorneys to protest the federal government about the Mexicans' marijuana use, and hence the Marijuana Tax Act came into effect. 
this wasn't all. Harry Anslinger himself had his own bigoted agenda. He would present stories of coloured students at the University of Minnesota partying with white female students and getting their sympathy with stories of racial persecution. Result? Pregnancy. He would argue that cannabis made blacks forget the appropriate racial barriers and unleash their lust for white women. In an official memo, he referred to a suspect as the N-word, which even at the time led the senator from his home state of Pennsylvania to demand his resignation. He hated jazz, wanting to see men like Charlie Parker, Louis Armstrong, and Thelonious Monk behind bars. The clearest example, though, was how Anslinger handled high-profile drug users. When he discovered that Judy Garland... What are you going to do with my dog? Give it back to me! Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz was, believe it or not, addicted to heroin. He advised her to take longer vacations. But when he discovered that Billie Holiday was addicted to heroin... He sent a black undercover agent to befriend, bust, and ultimately destroy her. Over several decades, Anslinger and his men brutalized Billie Holiday, who died on her hospital bed, literally being arrested for drug possession. And again, through it all, Anslinger ignored the medical experts. When Anslinger asked 30 scientists about marijuana, 29 of 30 wrote back saying it would be wrong to ban it. Naturally, he quoted the one expert who agreed with him. When the AMA issued a report debunking Anslinger's claims, he vowed to fire any agent caught with the report. When he found out a professor named Alfred Linsmith argued addicts should be treated with compassion and care, Anslinger instructed his men to falsely warn Linsmith University that he was associated with a criminal organisation, wiretapped him and sent a team to shut him up. This was Harry Anslinger, our modern day drug laws, his legacy. Let's take a step back. Yes, Harry Anslinger was a racist, corrupt drug warrior, but what does this have to do with the rest of the world? As the years go by, Anslinger notices drugs still on the streets, despite his bureau's growing influence. But it was the 1950s. Who better to blame than the communists? To Anslinger, it wasn't enough that the US was tough on drugs. Drug prohibition would only work if the whole world joined in. So off he went to the UN, proselytizing the virtues of drug control. To his anger, though, other countries resisted. Thailand, for example, refused to ban opium because it had been a long-standing tradition in their country and less harmful than prohibition. But when Anslinger threatened the removal of aid and access to the US economy, countries caved in. This happened outside the UN as well, when Mexico's leading drug expert, Leopoldo Vinegra, who'd been running a hospital treating addicts, refused to join Anslinger's drug war. Anslinger cut off Mexico's supply of opiates for pain relief in hospitals. Addicts suffered, and Mexico caved in. It's tempting to think Anslinger is an exception in our drug history, one bad apple, but this is not the case. One reason why Anslinger and his types waged the drug war is to legitimise their own power. If you convince the public that marijuana kills, even when it doesn't, you keep your job. After all, power corrupts. So who else might have a vested interest maintaining the drug war? Perhaps those selling illegal drugs? And also the other heads of the five families, 
If you recall, when the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was passed in 1914, law enforcement began its decades-long crusade prosecuting doctors who prescribed heroin to their patients. Years later, the Supreme Court ruled this illegal, since the 1914 Act made an exception for doctors. But why let the law stop you? One of the doctors who refused to let their patients suffer under this law was Dr. Edward Williams. Dr. Williams had formed a free addiction clinic. Addicts who came to him as physical wrecks quickly returned to work and supported their families. The mayor of LA hailed his clinic a huge success. A local federal prosecutor said his clinic accomplished more good in one day than all the prosecutions in one month. Yet one day, in 1931, after writing his patient a prescription for opiates, the police burst into the room and arrest him. Anslinger's men had paid the patient to get a prescription. But Chris had been effective in shutting down clinics all across California, putting doctors behind bars. But it turns out, Big Chris was closer to a street drug dealer than any of the doctors he put behind bars. Shortly after Dr. Williams' conviction, it's proved in court that Big Chris, one of Anslinger's main men, had been working for a Chinese drug dealer who paid Big Chris to shut these clinics down. I had to read this a few times. A big-time drug dealer bribing a narcotics officer to enforce drug laws against his competition? Genius, yes. But corrupt? Absolutely. This made me ask, was this a once-off? Of course not. When Anslinger finally stepped down in 1962, an investigation revealed his bureau was actually a major source of supply and protector heroin in the United States. In the 1970s, US police officers were found requesting transfers to the narcotics department because that's where the money was. In 1972, Rogue NYPD officers sold and released onto the streets $70 million worth of French Connection heroin previously seized, which is a beautiful piece of irony since, at the time, the movie French Connection, about a 1962 bust, had been showing in cinemas. Alright, Popeye's here! Get your hands on your heads! Get off the barn! Get on the wall! But how deep does this rabbit hole go? Well, in 1960, when Fidel Castro had risen to power in Cuba, the CIA paid mafioso Santo Traficante $150,000 to poison him. In doing so, the CIA turned a blind eye to the heroin the mafia had been smuggling from Cuba into the US. But this wasn't all. As part of its Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, the CIA launched Operation 40, which sent a group of CIA-trained Cubans to topple the Castro regime. But to the US disappointment, Bay of Pigs failed. Sensing an opportunity to make some money from their situation, the surviving Cubans of Operation 40 used their CIA protection to sip huge quantities of heroin and cocaine into the US. By 1970, the CIA-backed anti-Castro operatives had supplied 20% of the US's heroin and 60% of its cocaine. Well, how about Laos, 1964? The CIA had been training anti-communist forces on the ground. One of these was local warlord Vang Pao, who was also known for trafficking heroin. The CIA sent planes, known as Air America, to drop off ammunition for its local forces and transport wounded soldiers back to the US. But that wasn't the only use of Air America. Vang Pao used these planes to send heroin back to the US. Not only did the CIA turn a blind eye, it supplied extra planes for the operations, 
allowing Vang Pao to send heroin to American troops in Vietnam. This is actually one of many ironies in drug war history. The American soldiers to whom the CIA helped ship heroin are the very soldiers President Nixon would later use to justify his drug war in 1971. To recognize that it is a danger that will not pass with the passing of the war in Vietnam, which has brought to our attention the fact that a number of young Americans have become addicts as they serve abroad, whether in Vietnam or Europe or other places. But more on Nixon later. To make matters worse, during the Vietnam War, Vang Pao struck a deal with CIA-protected mafioso Santo Traficante, yes, the same guy we just spoke about, to traffic heroin into the US. In one shipment alone, they sent heroin that made up 20% of all heroin consumed in the US that year. With CIA protection guaranteeing capacity and thus heroin purity of 99%, heroin flooded the streets of New York City. In 1970, 200,000 New Yorkers were addicted to heroin alone. Now, some people, like the philosopher Terence McKenna, regarded the surge of heroin into the New York ghettos as deliberate social engineering. It's very clear that in the 60s, uh, China white heroin was used as a, as a social engineering drug in the American ghettos because every time you let in a lot of heroin, the political rhetoric in the ghetto fell to a murmur. It was, it was directly related to how loaded people were on these completely dulling, sedative drugs. I can't prove whether this is in fact true, but what is clear from multiple sources is that the drug war has conveniently lined the pockets of the US government. For at least the past 500 years, drugs, by different names, but drugs have been the one of the largest money earners ever brought into the marketplace. Uh, where is the CIA going to get a quick billion dollars or two off budget if they have a sudden need to topple an unfriendly Middle Eastern government? It, well, it's called taking a flyer on drugs. And when the US's military focus changes, Funnily enough, so do the drugs on the streets. When the geopolitical game slipped from the control of the US in one area of the world and we were run into the ocean in Vietnam, suddenly the world heroin supply was in the hands of the imams in, in Iran and the brown tar Iranian heroin uh, became a drag on the market and suddenly cocaine became the chic drug in the American ghetto. And that was because the CIA could just open certain taps and close other taps and bring uh, this stuff in and it made them a lot of money. I can remember, you know, there was a period uh, in the in the mid-70s to mid-80s where hashish just basically disappeared from the underground market. It was unknown in quantity, and then when the Mujahideen began to struggle against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, suddenly you could get uh, hundred kilo lots of hash un unbroken from how it's sold in the markets in Peshawar. So you could see it had not been concealed in any ordinary method. No, it had been drawn up to Pier 9 in San Francisco and unloaded with forklift trucks. 
because the CIA wanted the Mujahideen to have a bank account so they could pay for weaponry, and they knew that hash wasn't a problem anyway. And this government involvement in drug trafficking isn't confined to history. The US's presence in the Middle East has contributed to Afghanistan's booming opium production, up from 70% of the world's supply before September 11 to 90% in 2015, which, mind you, is the same opium production the CIA's Afghan operation had already helped grow in the 1980s. Now, to mention the full list of government involvement in drug trafficking would take too long, so I'll stop there. But I think you get my point. All told, these really are shocking abuses of power, committed by the same people insisting drug use is immoral. But to fully understand the last significant phase in our drug war history, President Nixon's new all-out offensive, there's one further abuse of power we need to look at. Because it might have been the impetus for Nixon's attack in the first place. Tonight we report on a secret CIA research project carried out in Montreal in which mental patients felt they were used as the CIA's guinea pigs. You may have heard of MKUltra, a secret CIA program started in 1953. Its purpose was to determine how to control and reprogram people's minds. Yes, a state-sponsored mind control program, that's correct. The CIA bought the entire world supply of a poorly known drug at the time, LSD. Fearful the Soviets would strike first, the CIA began administering LSD to American and Canadian citizens, often unlawfully, in the hope it would reprogram their minds. They kept you asleep for 23 days, and while I was asleep they were shocking the heck out of me with electric shocks. Yes, this is still as messed up as it sounds. But the experiments backfire. Instead of controlling people's minds, the LSD has the opposite effect. It frees them. I believe with uh, the advent of acid, we discovered a new way to think. One of the volunteers is Ken Kesey, a man who will later write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. His experience is so liberating that he gets himself hired as a nurse's aide at the hospital, where he's able to supply LSD to his friends. And in another piece of irony, soon enough, his friends, the entire West Coast, his whole generation, are rebelling against the man on LSD. MKUltra had backfired, massively. The counterculture was now in full throttle. You can live on $25 a week. That's assuming you're doing something you're interested in. The Vietnam War protests were picking up steam. Hell no, we won't go. We, the students of the United States, refuse to be drafted. Hell, we, won't go. we refuse to be turned into killers and corpses for a war that is not ours. And the civil rights movement was still raging on. To get a sense for how radical this period was, you need only look at one of the key figures of the counterculture movement. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Timothy Leary, an iconoclastic psychology professor from Harvard, was obsessed with LSD, its ability to break down barriers, free the mind, and disrupt US culture. We tell everyone that wants to listen to us, drop out of American society. Why do you we use think American auditory? society is an insane uh, anthill. And uh, the human being has been living for, uh, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of years before we had any of the things we consider so necessary in American life today. You can actually live, you can make love, you can uh, enjoy food, you can raise children without being a computerized, uh, mechanized American. One of his craziest acts was flying a plane over the 1970 Laguna Beach Festival and dropping thousands of Christmas cards with tabs of acid inside. Leary was so influential that in 1968 he ran for governor of California. But the establishment wasn't going to let Leary and his heterodox ideas take office. No, it declared him dangerous. At one point, Richard Nixon called me the most dangerous man in America, and I was being stopped and chased by the police everywhere I went for, for they were just, well, right. my, my basic crime was I was abusing the First Amendment by, <laughs> by talking too much. Leary represented what the drug war tries to repress, change, new ideas, and the breakdown of structure which are very often expressed in the drug experiences themselves. Here's Terence McKenna again. You know, I've always said that what psychedelics do, and to some degree all drugs, but psychedelics are the most dramatic, is they dissolve boundaries. Well, cultures and governments are totally, and they sell boundaries. Boundary consciousness is what they're all about. Our class, our group, our fatherland, motherland, our borgent lineage, our noble race. This is all the rhetoric of nationalism. And, uh, and so governments, whether a socialist state, an industrial democracy, a theocratic state, they can all get together on one proposition. The drugs are just terrible, terrible things because they erode loyalty to the myth, the, the societal myth. To return to Leary, on the very same day he ran for governor, police arrested him for marijuana possession, which Leary claims was a setup. As a matter of fact, uh, I've never been legitimately arrested. Uh, I'm in prison now because uh, one evening I was in a parked car and a policeman came up to the car and opened the door against my wishes made a pass of the ashtray and said, you're under arrest for, uh, said, for what? He said, for marijuana. I said, what marijuana? He reached in his pocket. He pulled out uh, two joints I'd never seen before, half joints, and uh, said, you're under arrest. A year later, the same thing happens. A year later, an Orange County, you know Orange County, uh, jury, believed the policeman's story and uh, found him guilty of possession of marijuana. Now then the judge, uh, instead of giving me bail, as I was entitled to for uh, appeal, I held up a book that I had been writing and said, uh, your ideas are dangerous and we're not going to give you bail and uh, we'll put you in prison to keep you quiet. But these were only small victories for the US government. At the time, Leary, the counterculture movement, the anti-war left and the civil unrest from the civil rights movement all represented a huge threat to the normal order. The Trilateral Commission would, years later, call this an excess of democracy. President Nixon had to clamp down. One thing Nixon's political opponents were perceived to have in common, the hippies, the anti-war and black protesters, was illicit drug use. If you can't lock them away for their opinions, lock them away for smoking weed. So, in 1971, Nixon tries to do just that. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. But like every drug warrior before him, Nixon's renewed drug war isn't about problematic drug use. 
The drug war Nixon supercharges in 1971, the one that the whole world still lives under today, is yet again about political oppression. As one of Nixon's main advisors, John Ehrlichman, reveals years later, The Nixon campaign had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Looking back, one can't help but notice the irony in Nixon renewing the war on drugs. All along, he fed the public propaganda about the great evils of drug use. Yet, only a few years later, he and four of the architects behind his drug war are convicted as criminals for their involvement in the Watergate scandal. That because of the Watergate matter, I might not have the support of the Congress that I would consider necessary but this only comes as a surprise if you believe the drug war was designed to help people. It isn't. The war on drugs was always and continues to be a conspiracy for illegitimate power, a corrupting organism that enriches crooked police officers and politicians, a police state that is meant to solve people's medical problems, but in reality locks them away. Here's the writer, Graham Hancock. The war on drugs is and was a conspiracy. Okay. In the way that perhaps hist- hist- history isn't the, a, a, a deliberate uh, con- conspiracy uh, to um, justify the creation of a police state. That's one of the things that the war on drugs has done. Yeah. You know that that because somebody privately in their own home is smoking a certain substance, the police have the right to break down the door of that home, arrest that person, humiliate them take them off to prison and ruin their lives. Um, and the ideology that accompanies it says, and this is okay, because taking drugs is a bad thing. That's what we've been taught, you know, for, 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 for so long. Ironically, when MK Ultra backfired, it ignited the very thing Nixon's drug war later tries to repress, individual freedom. But in clamping down, Nixon ushers in a mind control program of his own. Uh, we have had um, uh, a mind programming exercise called the War on Drugs for the last 40 years, uh, which has been designed to create an internal enemy in our societies and convince people that there are these evil, wicked groups who are doing these terrible, sinful things, smoking these drugs and doing doing this and that. And there's a very dark image has been created around it, and people get very upset irrationally about this uh, about this whole issue. And actually, what's been forgotten. In, uh, in all of this, and for, for me has become, I, I regard it as an extremely important issue, uh, is that when the state um, sends us to prison uh, for essentially exploring our own consciousness, uh, this is a grotesque abuse of human rights. It's a, it's a fundamental wrong. If, if I, as an adult, am not you know, sovereign 
over my own consciousness, then I'm absolutely not sovereign over anything. I can't claim any kind of freedom at all. And, and, and what has happened over the last 40 or 50 years under the disguise of the war on drugs is that, uh, that we have been persuaded to hand over the keys of our consciousness to the state, the most precious, the most intimate, the most sapient part of ourselves, the state now has the keys. And furthermore, they've persuaded us that that's in our interests. This is a very dangerous situation. To correct Graham Hancock, it's actually been a hundred years. A hundred years of propaganda, scare stories, new reasons for government power, but always the same old lie. This has been Hidden Perspective. Thanks for listening. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favour. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There, too easy. See you next time.